So we're in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28 today. Um, I was a, I'll call it a child of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. I still love 80s music. Um, but uh, the first time I got to vote was for Ronald Reagan. And I wasn't even old enough yet, so we voted in school as a, like a, Project, I think they brought in voting booths and all that kind of stuff. And so in 1980, I cast my first vote and I voted for Ronald Reagan. And then, you know, as I got to see him as president, um, ended up voting for him a second time than when I was legally able to vote. But one of the things I remember about Ronald Reagan was his introduction. Now, it wasn't new with him, but it was his introduction of something he called trickle-down economics. It wasn't his but he was the one who sort of um, promoted it and popularized it. And it was basically this idea that if you would reduce the tax rate on businesses and on the wealthy, that um, money would ultimately trickle down to upper and middle class and ultimately to lower classes. And the reason would be, the, the thinking behind it was, if we allow them to keep more of their money, they will invest it in business. So they will expand their business, which will then lead to hiring more people. It will include um, all kinds of additional things to the environment, and it actually would increase the tax base because you now have more people earning money. You've got, you know, maybe that individual expanded his business, doubled his business. Well, now the expectation is that he would pay double in taxes, etc., that type of thing. And whether you agree or disagree with whether that works or not, when you look at history, there is some good reason for thinking about that because um, when you look at corporate tax rates and you look at income tax rates, even for the wealthiest at time in history, there were times in history, the highest tax rate in history was 95%. There were people at one point that were expected to pay 95% of their income to Federal tax, what does that leave over for the rest? Now, obviously, they don't really pay that because there's deductions and other things that happen, but that was the highest tax rate. I believe it happened in 1934, 1940, or somewhere in that area, World War I or World War II. Now, for the last 30 decades, or 30 years or so, the corporate tax rate was, I'm sorry, the highest tax rate for rich was around 40%. Now, again, whether they pay that, and you hear the stuff right now about, oh, Bezos pays no tax, all that kind of stuff, and that's not my point. My, my point is simply to look at this and to say it's an interesting model that things should sort of trickle down. And that was Reagan's idea. And it did impact the economy at that time. We were coming out of the severe recession. I, don't, I almost feel like calling it a depression because of what was happening in the 70s. But it seemed to really revitalize the economy. And the rich did just what Reagan thought they would do. Built businesses, invested, and, and job creation went through the roof. Now, whether or not they ultimately ended up paying more, you know, more tax or not, I don't know. I'm not going to argue that. But the idea was that stuff should trickle down. And so I thought about that as I looked at this passage today, and that's really the model of discipleship that we're supposed to see. The way Jesus expected the church to grow was through a very similar model, that you would sort of have knowledge and experience and other things trickle down as people grew and matured in Christ. They would disciple and mentor others, and they would then mature and mentor and disciple others and so you would get kind of this upside down funnel a friend of mine showed me this picture a couple of weeks ago i may have even shared it with dustin it was a a picture of two funnels and the funnel on the left of the picture was a regular funnel big opening at the top very small opening at the bottom and then there was a globe underneath it the earth 
And they, they said, this is the model we see in many churches today. A real big funnel at the top where the church invites the world in and they sort of cater to the unsaved and they do all kinds of things to bring in the unsaved to, to the church. And then they kind of teach them from the pulpit to some degree and it all kind of gets funneled down and what you end up with at the very end is very few people actually doing ministry. And there is some truth to that. I mean, when you look back at, at um, this seeker-sensitive model that was um, promoted by Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, one of the things they had learned was they had exploded the, their church and growing it in massive numbers. But 20 years later, they realized that the people within their church were very immature spiritually, not very good when it came to their knowledge of the scriptures. And very few of them were having any impact in their culture or society around them. Almost all that impact was being done by the church, the physical body. And so this funnel really wasn't working all that well. And then the other picture was an upside-down funnel, which started with Jesus, and then the three, and then kind of the twelve, and then the five hundred, and then Paul, and it really looked very different. And that second model was really the one that Jesus kind of gave to us to use. It's not this church here that's supposed to be reaching out. It's all of us within this church that are supposed to grow and mature and do that work. It's much like a family. You know, mom and dad, two people, have kids. Maybe they have two. Maybe they have three. Maybe they have four. Maybe they have eight. Maybe they have ten. But you've now got more than what they started with, right? And the same picture should happen with discipleship. Ultimately, you should have more believers by the time you get done than you start with because they're supposed to multiply. And so I looked at this model of trickle-down economics and I thought it's kind of an interesting title for a message, trickle-down discipleship. And I want to talk about that today. Our focus is going to be primarily on four individuals. We're going to see how Paul's commitment to discipleship actually impacted a husband and a wife by the name of Priscilla and Achilla. Then we're going to see how their commitment to discipleship actually impacted another individual, Apollos. Then we're going to see how Apollos' commitment to discipleship actually impacted believers at Corinth. And so we're going to see how this sort of trickles down from Paul through Priscilla and Achilla, down to Apollos, down to other believers. So it's a form of trickle-down discipleship. It's exactly what Jesus intended. So let's go ahead and look at this. I'm going to read verses 18 through 23, starting in chapter 18. Paul, having remained there many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out for sea for Syria, and with him with Priscilla, or were Priscilla and Achilla. In Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. There he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews... When they asked him to stay for a while longer, he did not consent. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you again if God wills. He then set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent time there, he left and he passed successfully through Galatia and through Phrygia, where he was strengthening all the disciples. So when Paul left Corinth for Ephesus, he not only took Silas and Timothy with him, we know who they are, but he actually took this couple, Priscilla and Achilla, with him as well. Now we were inter them, introduced to them a couple of weeks ago. Um, go back to chapter 18, verse 2. You see, after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had basically kicked them out of Rome. They were the first two people that Paul actually met when he got to Corinth. We talked about that. They were Jews that came to Corinth because they were kicked out of Rome when Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome because of the frustration they were having over Crestus, if you remember that. It was probably a reference to Christ. So they ended up making their way to Corinth. It's not clear, if you remember, whether they were Christians when Paul first met them. But they certainly became Christians, and we see that through the rest of the scriptures. They became significant leaders within that early church. And so we studied that a little bit, Paul meeting them. Now, he obviously was fairly impressed with them because he not only took, took them along with him when he left Corinth. Remember here it says that he took them along with him, along with Silas and Timothy. So Paul must have been impressed with them enough to say, come with me on the rest of my missionary journey here. In fact, verse 18, if you go back to that, it says, And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. So he asked them to join him on the rest of his missionary journey. If you go down to verse 19, he did something else, which is almost easy to overlook. It says that when they came to Ephesus, he left them there. So Paul's intent was to take them from Corinth, get to Ephesus, but then leave them at Ephesus as he would then go on. That clearly tells us that there were some trust issues here, meaning Paul did trust them, not that he didn't. So they must have impressed Paul. There was something about them. So I kind of wondered, how did they go from being simple Jewish tent makers, because that's who they were, to somebody Paul could trust to leave at Ephesus to minister on his behalf? How did that happen? Well, if you remember, Paul spent about a year and a half teaching the word when he was at Corinth. That was a time of mentoring and discipleship. We see in Paul's pattern that he would start with evangelism. He would go to the synagogue and he would preach to the Jews and at some point they would give him the old boot. So he would take those disciples out and then he would spend time mentoring and discipling and teaching them, sometimes for longer periods of time. And in Corinth, he did this for a year and a half. And when he was doing this at Corinth, he stayed with Priscilla and Killa. And we know something else about Priscilla and Aquila. Two other times we're told that they had a habit of hosting churches in their homes. They did this when they lived in Rome for a short period. They did this while they were at Ephesus. It appears they probably did this at Corinth as well. And so think about this for a moment. Paul's living with these two individuals. For a year and a half, he's teaching and mentoring disciples there, probably out of the house of Priscilla and Aquila. Imagine what they must have learned during that time. Not only just in Paul's weekly Bible study or daily Bible study or whatever he did, but just living with them, seeing them when you wake up for breakfast and he has his cup of coffee, if you will, when he comes home at night and shares a dinner with them. We're also told that he worked with them in their shop, in the marketplace, building tents. Can you imagine the conversations Paul must have had with Priscilla and Aquila? Last night we were here. Got to sit, sit next to Joe and Nick. And what do we do? Talked about some eschatology. I love those kind of things. Man, we can learn so much just in those. I get, a, I get an hour with you on Sunday mornings. Um, but there are other times where we get to interact. Maybe somebody sends a question. Or we have a conversation somewhere. 
So we know that that's likely what happened with Paul and his relationship with Priscilla and Aquila. And for a year and a half, they get to be mentored by him, discipled. He gets to pour his heart, his soul, his love for Christ, his knowledge of the scriptures into these two individuals. Now, we've talked about this before. Paul wasn't simply interested in evangelism. We sometimes get it wrong as a church because we think it's all about evangelism. But it's not. Jesus didn't command us to evangelize the world. He commanded us to make disciples. Those two are very different. Evangelism is only the first step. Jesus and Paul weren't just interested in people getting saved. What they wanted was Christ-loving, Christ-honoring, Christ-serving disciples. Little Jesuses, if you will. And Paul had a commitment to that. We know that because of his letters that he wrote. He wrote approximately half of our New Testament. He provides instructions, encouragement, chastisement, exhortation throughout his letters. You can see Paul's heart for mentoring and discipling in his letters. Even in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, the second letter we looked at, remember how he was wounded or hurt by his relationship with the Corinthians. They didn't treat him very appropriately, and yet you see him in his letter pouring out his heart in the midst of being hurt by them for their benefit, trying to help them. Paul elsewhere has said that he oftentimes ministered with tears. He talks about his own concern. One of the last things he lists when he, when he gives us a catalog of the things he did face, like his shipwreck and the beatings and the whippings and the prisons, one of the last things he mentions is my concern, the burden of concern I have for God's people. Paul wasn't satisfied with just winning Jews to Christ and moving on. What he wanted to do was to see people grow and mature, be able to use the gifts and abilities, be able to multiply themselves. That's where his heart was. And I believe we see that with Priscilla and Aquila. Even though it's not blatantly screened in the text, as we put the small pieces of the puzzle together, that's clearly what happened. Paul spending time with Priscilla and Aquila, and we're going to see how that ultimately rubbed off on them. This was actually Paul's pattern. Think about it. If I did my math right, there are at least 24 people mentioned in the New Testament that Paul recruited and mentored and had traveled with them on his journeys. One of the things Paul did was he invited people to come along with him on his journeys to, in many respects, be his apprentices. That's how he trained and taught them. And there are at least 24 individuals in the New Testament. I'm just going to list some of the names here. You may know some of them. You've got Silas and Timothy. You've got Titus. Luke actually traveled with them. There's another man, Epaphras, Erastus, Eubulus, Eunice. Some others you may know, Phoebe, Sopater, Anisiphorus, Jason, Philemon. There's a whole host of them. And that's just the ones we know. One of the things we know about Luke as he writes, and as the, script, as the um, authors of letters and other things wrote, they didn't give us everything. Which means just the 24 we have is probably just the tip of the iceberg. So Paul had this pattern of taking people with him to mentor, to grow them, to involve them in ministry so that they would be able to do the same things. And by doing that, one of the things Paul was able to do is expand his ministry. And what I mean by that is he was able to go to a place like Ephesus and be able to say, okay, Priscilla and Aquila, I'm leaving Ephesus in your hands because I'm going to go on somewhere else. So I've equipped you, I've mentored you, I've discipled you, and now I trust you. And he did that with Timothy as well. He sent Timothy ultimately at Ephesus to help clean up a mess there with false teaching. He sent Titus to Crete to help deal with some issues there. 
That was Paul's pattern. And I believe that when we look at Priscilla and Aquila, the reason it says he took them with him and then he left them at Ephesus was exactly that reason. He had trained them, he had mentored them, and he now knew he could trust them at Ephesus. We get a pretty good picture of how important it was for Paul to do this through example. In other words, being a model by looking at one particular individual, Timothy. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter five. I'm sorry, chapter one, verse five. He says, "For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in which is in you through the laying on of my hands." Now, some interpret that as Paul physically laid his hands on Timothy and some kind of supernaturally instilled him with a gift. I understand that differently, that but what the phrase he's using here, the laying out of my hands, is more a mentoring. In other words, the reason that Timothy was a gifted teacher, and we find that elsewhere, that's where his gifting was, was because Paul laid his hands on him, took him with him. I don't believe this is a physical, I laid my hands on you and the gift of the Spirit came upon you and you now were an amazing preacher. This concept of laying out of hands also in the scriptures refers to taking somebody under your shoulder, under your wing. I've laid my hands on you. And so I believe that what Paul is telling Timothy here is that his gift of teaching was partly because Paul mentored him. Look what else he says if you go down to um, verses 7 and 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. Paul invited Timothy along. Timothy also suffered along with Paul. In fact, at one point he even spent time in prison with Paul. He says, according to the power of God. Look down at verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. Remember, Timothy, what I taught you. Remember those things you've heard me teach. Jump down to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you catch that? What does he say? Timothy, remember the things that I taught you? Now teach those things to other men. But not only that, teach them to other men who will be able to do what? Teach others also. He's one step ahead. Then he also says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul took these men along with him knowing they would suffer alongside him, know that their lives would be put in danger. And I imagine as part of that, Paul taught them how to suffer as well. You know, we, Dustin and I kind of have jokingly said before that um, when you go through the book of Acts, there's not only a lot of really great stuff, but there's a lot of persecution too. And sometimes it can become kind of a downer focusing on the persecution all the time. But you know what? Part of my job is to remind you we're going to be persecuted. I can't back away from that. The scriptures tell us that. So in some respects, I have to help teach us what it means to suffer. Now, we've been fortunate here. We don't suffer a lot. I think it's coming. And so part of the job that Paul taking Timothy along was to teach him how to suffer. 
as well. Let him watch Paul. He didn't want to shield any of them from what he would experience and what they may ultimately experience. That's part of the mentoring and the discipling. Jesus warned his own disciples. They're going to hate you because they hate me. He warned them. He prepared them. That's part of mentoring and discipleship. Last verse I want to look at is chapter 3, verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, and my sufferings. What was he telling Timothy there? The idea of following there is really the idea of you've witnessed, you've watched. So he's saying, Timothy, you've, you've followed what I've taught, you've followed my conduct, you've seen me, you've, you've known my purpose, you've watched my faith, you've seen me be patient, you've watched me love, you've seen how I've persevered. You followed these things, Timothy. In other words, he exposed Timothy to all of those things. Why? Because that's discipleship. And it paid off because he was able to trust Timothy. Timothy oftentimes was left behind. Paul would go to a city, put things in order. He would leave Timothy there. Timothy would continue to work, probably mentoring, discipling elders and pastors there as well so that he could then go join Paul again in the next place and we would do this, start the whole process back over again. So let's bring this all back to Priscilla and Aquila now. Paul's ministry obviously had a tremendous effect on them because they become invaluable to him. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Look at what Paul says about them. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also, greet the church that is in their house. We'll stop there. So basically, Paul is writing to the Romans. He's telling them, to greet Priscilla to kill him. Look at how he refers to them. He says, they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not with Priscilla to kill him. That's why he's saying greet them. They're off in Rome. Remember I said they lived for a small period of time? Well, when they had gone, they were initially in Rome, got kicked out of Rome, went back to Rome for about a year, it sounds like, and then they went to Ephesus again and finally settled there. But that short period that they're back in Rome, they've already established a church in their house. And so Paul is referring to them at that place, at that point, they're my fellow workers. So it's a phrase that Paul would often use only about those who served alongside him and in some respects ministered right along with him. Just like Timothy and Silas did. That's why they're called his fellow workers. And so he refers to Priscilla and Aquila as his fellow workers. They were actively involved in ministry. Remember when Paul stayed at Corinth for a year and a half? And the fact that he took Priscilla and Aquila along with him? They were likely working alongside him right at that point. That's probably why he was able to take them along with him. We see that that rubbed off on him because obviously they were functioning in that capacity elsewhere. They had a home church probably at Ephesus. They had one at Rome. They had one at Corinth, it appears. So they were fellow workers of Paul's. Second, I want you to notice that Paul says that they risked their lives for him. That's in chapter 16 of Romans as well. That probably took place in the riot in Acts. Um, When the city exploded, um, Paul tries to go into the um, theater against 
warnings from others, but it says some disciples and then some high-ranking political figures all persuade Paul, don't go into the theater, they'll kill you. Well, this reference here to them risking their own lives to save his life is probably a reference to that. We don't know what happened. We don't know what they did. But they were willing to risk their own lives for Paul's sake. Third thing I want us to notice is that Paul says that it wasn't just him that was thankful for their ministry. But notice what it says, that all the churches of the Gentiles were thankful for Paul's ministry. That's a pretty bold statement. That kind of gives us a breath of their ministry. He didn't say, oh, there's a small church in your home that really is thankful for you. He says, all the churches of the Gentiles, which means they were fairly well known. And remember, they didn't have Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. This was all word of mouth. Finally, notice that Paul refers to them as hosting a house in their church. Or, I mean, a church in their house. Again, I stress that over and over and over because that's where their heart was. That's where discipleship and mentoring took place. Was hosting people in your own home for the purpose of fellowship, teaching, or worship. Paul actually refers to Priscilla and Aquila one last time. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. You can read that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Just a simple reference. Is that 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19? Yep. Greet Priscilla and Achilla and the household of Anesiphorus. That's all we see. It's one of the last things Paul wrote. It's interesting that three verses later, we never hear from Paul again. Priscilla and Achilla are some of the last people he mentions. And a reference to their ministry, the church that's in their house. Paul's commitment to discipleship, I think, is reflected in what we see in not just Silas and Timothy, but Priscilla, you know, Priscilla and Achilla specifically. I'll make a statement here. I don't know how it will come across, but disciples are not born, they're made. Can I say that without offending anyone? Disciples are not born, they're, they're made. You know, think about it. You give birth to a child, and you walk away, what happens? The expectation is that you'll have a child, and then you spend the next 18 or 40 years of your life raising that child, teaching them, training them how to function in the real world. If you don't do that and you walk away, what happens? And so what we see, at least in the first portion of our passage today, is that Priscilla and Aquila were mentored by the Apostle Paul, discipled by the Apostle Paul. They were actively involved with ministry. And we're actually going to see their impact now as we move to the next portion of our text. What we've just looked at was who they are and how they got that way, if you will. And I'm going to look at how they passed that along. How it trickled down from Paul to Priscilla and Aquila and then on to somebody else. Look at verse 24 of chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos in Alexandria by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. 
This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to teach out boldly or speak out boldly in the synagogue. I'm going to stop right there. So we have this man, or, um, Apollos. He was in Alexandrian, which was a large city, Roman city actually in Egypt. The NASB here refers to him as an eloquent man and it can either refer to simply eloquence in speech, but it can also refer to somebody who was learned and intelligent and well-taught. That's probably the way it's being used here. That he was an educated man. We're told a little bit later that he was mighty in the scriptures, which means he was well-educated in the Old Testament scriptures. He understood them. We're told that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It means that He was, again, well-versed in the Old Testament and God's ways, understanding God's redemptive plan and other things. We're also told that he was enthusiastic as a speaker. says he was fervent in spirit. We're told that he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. And so here this man is. He shows up in Ephesus, well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures and the ways of God. And first thing he does, he shows up at the synagogue and he begins to teach the Jews. Something he apparently loved to do again. It says that he's fervent in spirit. There's only one problem, though, with Apollos. His understanding of salvation wasn't complete. Look at verse 26, the second half, the part I skipped. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord, or the way of God, more accurately. Dustin highlighted something this morning about how they did this kind of privately, it appears. Something that doesn't say specifically the text, but it's probably intended, was that they probably spent multiple days, hours, or time with him. It probably wasn't just a, oh, by the way, you don't know this, and give me ten minutes, I'll correct you, and you go on your merry way. It was likely that they pulled him aside and spent time with him, instructing and teaching him more accurately the way of the Lord. Now, some controversy over this, exactly what does that mean, and we'll kind of get into that, but... I want you to turn to um, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. We covered this last week. I'm just going to highlight some things here. There's another group of people that are very similar to Apollos here. I think it will help us to understand what was happening with Apollos here because it's not real clear whether Apollos is saved at this point or unsaved. It's very similar to what we see in Acts chapter 19. If you remember, when we looked at that, there's these 12 men... Luke here calls them disciples in chapter 19. It says that they weren't aware that the Holy Spirit had been poured out yet. They were disciples of John, but there was an eagerness there to understand. And so we have Paul engaging in conversation with them. And what you begin to realize is that apparently they were seeking to know the Lord. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. But they didn't know that he had come and that the Holy Spirit had been poured out yet. But they were eager in their anticipation, waiting for that to happen. They were believers in the sense that they believed in John's message of the coming Messiah, believed it was was imminent, it would be there soon. They just didn't know that Jesus actually had come yet. Until Paul says, oh, by the way, the one you're waiting for, the one you believe in, it's this Jesus. And immediately they were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit. Amazing thing that happened. Well, it appears that Apollos is probably very similar to that. Because the only thing we're told here is that he was acquainted with John the Baptist. Which means he would have understood God's plan about a Messiah. It's possible that since it says here in the text 
that he was accurately teaching the ways of Jesus. It's possible that he had some understanding of Jesus fulfilling that role, but it probably wasn't as complete as maybe what we believe today. Now, think about this for a moment. What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Did he immediately ascend to heaven? No. How many days did Jesus spend between his resurrection and his ascension? Forty days. What did he do during those forty days? He continued to teach the disciples what they were missing about the kingdom of God. In other words, they knew Jesus had come. They knew he had died. They knew he rose from the dead. But exactly how that would fit in the rest of life and what the rest of the plans were, they weren't sure about. Jesus probably explained to them, okay, I'm going to build a father's house, or your house, up in my father's house. I'm going to go away for a little while. You're going to suffer. Here's how this plan is going to work out. But ultimately, I'm going to come back for you. And this is how it's all going to play out. He probably also went back to the Old Testament and explained to them how to interpret many of those Old Testament passages now in light of his death, burial, and resurrection so that their understanding of the Old Testament was now much more mature. That's likely what we have with Apollos here. He may very well have known Jesus was the Messiah, but probably not as completely as was necessary. Think about it, as we begin to talk to people, um, we don't usually just want to tell them about Jesus and they get saved and we move on. We want them to understand what comes next, future events. We want them to understand how to walk out their faith, how to apply it. And so what Priscilla and Achilla do here is Apollos comes in with his eagerness and his knowledge and and, um, his willingness to teach. And so what do Priscilla and Achilla do here? They basically come in, they take him aside, and they teach him more accurately. What do they do? They disciple him. They mentor him. They help him with his understanding. They help him grow in this new understanding of Jesus Christ. So they explain to him the way of God more accurately. That's a statement of discipleship. Every Sunday morning, either me or Dustin stand up here, and we have one goal, that you might be able to more accurately Understand this. That's our one goal. Why? It's a form of mentoring. It's a form of discipleship. It's so that you might grow in an understanding of Jesus Christ. But our hope is that ultimately that gets passed on. First and foremost to your children. But then as you're able to share and minister to other people, that it might get shared there as well. So I'm going to propose that It was Priscilla's and Achilla's ministry at Ephesus and their commitment to discipleship that they had learned from Paul that now ultimately leads to something else. So Paul mentored and taught them. They now pass that on to Apollos. What do we expect of Apollos now? Apollos is going to do the same thing. Look at verse 27 and 28 of chapter 18. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia... The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So you notice what Apollos does. Apollos says, man, I've got to go to Achaia. I've got to take what I just learned. I'm going to go to Achaia now. 
The believers at Ephesus must have been fairly impressed with Apollos because they actually write letters of recommendation to send along with Apollos. Now, Achaia is a, basically it refers to a southern Greece, if you will, fairly large area. So they write him letters and they encourage the believers there to welcome him primarily as a teacher. So he ultimately ends up at Corinth. He arrives there according to Luke. He immediately begins to do what other or do for other believers what Paul had done for Priscilla and Achilla and what they had ultimately done for him, which is this. He helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Now, I don't imagine that's a reference to, you know, help them clean their house and help them mow their law. No, he helped them in what area? In their maturity, their growth. They had believed by grace, which is a reference to new belief. These are new believers. They needed somebody to now help turn them into disciples, if you will. And so he helped them, it says, greatly. With what? The knowledge and stuff that Priscilla and Achilla had passed on to him. So he had been discipled, and he was now discipling others. I think about that in my own life. When I was newly saved as a Christian in Campus Crusade for Christ, there was a young man who taught, mentored, led a Bible study for me. From there, I went to Wausau, Wisconsin, where I met Pastor Krenz, who spent, I'll say, intense time with me, specifically teaching me and training me to then go on to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I had these amazing professors. Led to where I'm at today. I've had the privilege of being able to pass some of that on to others by being a pastor. There are some individuals that I've had the opportunity to mentor that are now pastoring and teaching others. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. That's the way God intended it. And I almost look at it, Dustin had, I think, jokingly at one point, I don't know if you used the phrase grandfathers like that, but kind of had mentioned something about how he felt, in some respects, how Pastor Krenz, what he had passed on to me, is now passed on to Dustin. It's almost like a grandfather, you know. And I've reminded Pastor Krenz of that oftentimes. You realize because you invested your time in me that I've been now able to invest that time in others. And you've not only got grandchildren, you've got great-grandchildren because some of those are now pastoring churches. It's the way it's supposed to work. And so we see Apollos here ministering at Ephesus all because somebody took the time to teach him more accurately the way of Jesus. Luke actually writes that he became a skilled evangelist. If you look at verse 28 there, it says, So he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So he was not only a skilled teacher, but he was a skilled evangelist. He became pretty important in the church as well. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he referred to Apollos as someone who watered. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, verse six. First Corinthians chapter three, verse six. Yep. Notice Paul says this, verse five. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, 
But God was causing the growth. I, I like the way he says that because this, this implies again what I've shared about how Paul oftentimes would trust these men that he had mentored and discipled to then sort of pick up where he left off, would minister in his stead. Like I said, he left him. In fact, he tells Timothy, the beginning of first, or first um, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus for a purpose. He left Priscilla and Achilla at Ephesus for a purpose. Well, in this instance, you say he says, I planted and then Apollos watered. What comes first? The planting. What comes second? The watering. And so this is an instance where he's referring to how Apollos was able to sort of step in after Paul had planted to continue to mentor, discipleship make, if you will, those that Paul had won to Christ. And so we find here Apollos in ministry once again of discipleship. He was apparently very well liked because it actually caused problems at Corinth. Go back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinth, look at verses 12 through 13. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Apollos? He goes on. But basically, they had become so enamored with Apollos that they were sort of becoming fans, if you will, of him. I only highlight that because he apparently had a fairly successful ministry among them. He taught in such a way that they fell in love with whatever he was teaching, so much to the point that it almost became worship of Apollo, Apollos instead of worship of Christ. But he was well-liked. He was apparently a good teacher. We don't really know a whole lot more about Apollos. He kind of fades out in some respects. But we know that he was with Paul at Ephesus. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, go to the very end of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verse 12, he mentions them. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you. Now notice again, that's a phrase of Paul trusting Apollos. He's a, a partner with Paul. And he's, he's trying to send Apollos on for a ministry purpose here. But he says, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. In other words, Apollos had some ministry of his own there he was following up with, and he told Paul, well, I can't go right now, but I will as soon as I'm done. We also find out later that he was with Titus on Crete. He made, him, he made some travel plans, apparently, at some point. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 13. He's writing to Titus, who's on the island of Crete. He says, Diligently help Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. We don't know how Apollos ended up at Crete, but he did. But you've got him in Ephesus, you've got him in Corinth, you've got him in Crete. He made the rounds. Aside from that, we don't know a whole lot more, except he was apparently a well-trusted ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. So think about this for a moment. Paul spends time with Priscilla and Achilla. They then go on and they spend time with Apollos. Apollos then goes on and spends time at Crete and Corinth and Ephesus. I wonder how many people under Apollos' ministry went on and did the same thing. You have to assume they did only because that's why we're here. 
Remember, the model of discipleship is multiplication. We mentor, we disciple, we pass along our faith, our heritage, our knowledge, our wisdom, and our understanding, a grasp of what we find here. And then they go off and they do the same thing. Trickle-down discipleship. It's the way it's supposed to work. You've heard me say before that Jesus didn't command evangelism, but discipleship. What did he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, which is a reference to them coming to Christ. That's the evangelism portion of this. But baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, which means they have to have a good understanding of this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the model that Jesus laid out. And we see that spelled out beautifully in this passage today. All of these are excellent excellent examples, I think, of how it's supposed to work. It's all supposed to be trickled down. I think about that with our families. You know, my goal and hope is that I can pass this along to my kids if they're listening, that they might be able to do the same thing. I've often heard that having a family is the greatest form of discipleship that exists. You know, we all ought to have ten babies, right? <laughs> We could have evangelized. We would have been done with this thing. If all of us had ten babies and they were all Christians, Jesus would have come back already, right? We would have. Maybe not. But you get my point. Um, so the way it's kind of supposed to work now, unfortunately, is we think about a lot of what's happening. The, 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 I gave the example of the two funnels. You know, um, a lot of churches today don't spend nearly enough time teaching and instructing. It's They become social clubs or they become entertainment venues. And I'm not saying they don't love the Lord. But when you begin to look at the Christian population in the United States today, it's one of the most biblically illiterate generations in history. How can we pass on what we ourselves don't necessarily understand? You can't. You know, um, Kimberly and I were talking the other night about um, just behavior in general, how we act and behave as Christians, and she brought up a good point about how so many young Christian kids today do and say and act just like the world around them because they don't know any better. And we talked about it in the context of language, what we say, what we wear, and stuff like that. Um, this is a critical thing. We were left here to make disciples. That's what Jesus expects of us. That's how he intended to reach the world for Christ. And I, again, I think we see this great example of Paul spending time with Priscilla and Achilla and them spending time with Apollos and Apollos spending time with believers elsewhere, all for meeting that purpose of passing along, allowing that to all sort of trickle down to the next generation. And so I think about, you know, what we do here as a church. Um, Somebody mentioned one time that I was condemning us to a small church because I wasn't interested in all the flashy marketing plans and the way that so many churches are um, done today. And I'm not slamming big churches, that's not my point, but I was encouraged and trained that the way to reach everyone is to just to build a big church. And I thought, but isn't there something more important, which is teaching, mentoring, discipling people, and letting them go out and do that? 
And the model has been kind of flipped. We'll just bring them into the church on Sunday morning and they'll all get saved. But what happens after that? If there's mentoring and discipling and they're then going out and doing it, that's the way it should work. But if all we're doing is filling the church with people who show up on a Sunday morning and they're no different when they leave or they're no different when they go out and they don't look any different to their co-workers or their neighbors or to their friends or their family, nothing's trickling down. So that's our purpose. That's what we're called to. I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus showed us his example with the way that he ministered and how Paul shows us how he ministered. And then we have a text today that Luke shares us how that whole process worked. I'll stop preaching to you, but that's my heart, is that we might follow that model, whether it's in your own families or whether it's in ministries you might have. That's what we're called to, that it might trickle down. I can't think of any other way to end my life than to basically kind of think, there are people that I've been able to pass down what Pastor Krenz and others passed down to me and to know that they will pass those things down as well.